Amen. That's okay, brother. You do well. <laughs> it's okay. I heard a whole pastor talk about awkward moments in the service and how we need to do without them and everything, but what can you do? Amen? If you become so programmed, we're just like the world, then let it flow. Amen? I want to play for you something today that's very heartbreaking for me. Open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 1. The title of today's message is How the Mighty Have Fallen. I want you to say that with me on the count of three. One, two, three. How the mighty have fallen. What I want to talk to you today about is how people in the church today have fallen. I'm not preaching this to you with boastful pride to say, oh, I'm so good because I haven't fallen. No, without the grace of God, I would fall even further than where many people in the church have fallen as of now. Without Christ, I was a wretched sinner. And I know that I need Him more and more every day. But I want to share with you a message very similar to yesterday's message. Mute all the mics up here for me, brother, please. Last week I shared a message about not touching the ark. I said not only would it be for you, but it would go through you. This is another one of those messages. I'm not just speaking to you, I'm speaking to a nation. And I'm speaking to the church as a whole, universal, across our planet. That when people ask me questions, I want to revert them back to this lesson. When you are struggling with what Metro Praise is here to do, I want you to go back to lessons like today. How the mighty have fallen. I want you to listen to a pastor that I dearly love and respect. I don't know if I would even give you his name in the website that I'm playing right now. I don't feel in my heart that he has intentionally done anything wrong in his mind. In his mind, he's done everything right. He's trying to win souls. He's trying to be relevant to a culture. But this pastor was a pastor of mine and a pastor to my family. And I went to his website yesterday as I was kind of stirring this message up on the inside. God was stirring it on me. And I heard this and something just, I believe it was God, just said, play this for the people. And something is not working with our video player. So I'm just going to play it for you and you're going to hear the audio. And what this audio comes from is the church website. And it's him just simply making just a 30 second video of what you can expect when you come to his church. I want you just to listen to this. We are a hassle-free ministry. That means we don't ask you to get up and do anything or say anything. We just want you to relax and enjoy the presence of God. Did you hear what he just said? He said we are a hassle-free ministry. We don't ask you to get up and say anything or do anything. We just want you to sit back and relax and enjoy the presence of God. Does that sound like something Jesus said to Peter? Peter, I'm not asking you to do anything. Peter, I'm not asking you to say anything. I just want you to sit back and relax and watch me do everything. Is that what he said? 
The Bible says that when Jesus met Peter, the first thing that he said to him is, Come and follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. The call to be a follower of Christ is the call to be a disciple. And the call to be a disciple is to be a disciple maker. Today's message is a broken heart from my heart today that I have looked for other mentors and leaders across this nation, people who I've even respected, and I've seen so many of them fall from what God told us to do. This man I respect. I love him. I am shocked that that's what he put on his website. I am discerning whether or not to send him this message in hopes that it would change his heart. And you might say, Pastor, you're supposed to do that, but listen to me. After having done that for so many other pastors, you get to the point where you know it won't even be received. Why even bother? It's almost hopeless until I go back to the Word of God and I realize that I'm not the only one. And that I've realized that there is people in this nation, great men and women of God who are alive today, and those who have come before us that have preached the same Word I'm preaching now. And they're not just Pentecostal. They're also of different persuasions. John Piper, David Wilkerson, Steve Hill... Dr. Michael Brown, so many are still preaching that word that are alive today. And you can find their links on our website. And they, like me, are disgusted by the same thing that they're seeing in the church. How the mighty have fallen. I'm reminded of some personal stories. I'm reminded of a personal story of a pastor that I knew by the name of Pastor Tom. He was the pastor of the local church that had the all-night prayer meeting. And he was a big bear-like of a man. And I would come to those meetings and he would be praying all night long. And he would lay hands on me and I would fall down and go boom. And he would pick me up and I would fall out again. And we would get so inebriated in the Holy Ghost. He loved the Lord. But the thing with Tom is he had a female assistant pastor. Tom was happily married, had beautiful children that were my age, young adults, and he had this assistant female pastor. We believe in women doing all that men can do to a certain extent. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with the women being in ministry, especially that. And I began to spend time with Tom during the week. And I would see him with that assistant pastor. Just him and this other female, not his wife. And over a period of a few weeks, I started to get that kind of twist in my stomach. You've had it before. When you're around somebody and you just don't feel right. Something's not right. But you're young, you know. You don't know how to speak up. And I knew something was wrong. Well, when I went to Bible college a few months later, my mom called me and said, Tom has left his wife with that assistant pastor. How the mighty have fallen. A man I looked up to. A man that I called pastor. A man that laid his hands on me and said, Joe, God will use you. Who used the gifts and prophesied. Fell into sin. How the mighty have fallen. Another pastor who I won't mention 
His name because He's been restored and I don't want to bring shame upon Him. But He was another pastor of my parents. And this pastor loved me and prayed for me. He saw me when I was on drugs. He knew that I had issues and he always prayed for me. And when I first got saved, I was afraid to be alone by myself. I didn't want to go back to sin and I thought I would fall into temptation. He let me spend the night in his house. This pastor loved me. He brought me to my first Sunday morning service. And I watched people just like you raise their hands and it just freaked me out. I thought that was so weird. But, like with Pastor Tom, my wife called me, my wife, my mom called me and said, Jack is getting a divorce from his wife. Now, there was no sexual affair, but both of them came to differences they couldn't resolve and ended their marriage. He remarried and started another church. How the mighty have fallen. That was my example. You say, Pastor, was it any better in Bible college? Well, yes, it was. I met Brother Anthony there, who is now our spiritual father. Brother George, who is also a mentor to me. And I met great men. But there was a second year student that was above me. And man, did I want to be like him. He was from the islands. He could preach like nobody's business. I was just a little puppy at his feet. Hey, brother, when are we going to do this? When are we going to do this? Brother, when are we going to do this? I want to go witness. You want to go preach? You want to go preach? And I was just like a little puppy just nipping at his heels. And then I found out that over his summer vacation, he fornicated, had sex, came back to school, and wanted to go on as if nothing happened. He was full of pride. Just a year ago, There was a revival on our webcast from Florida to Florida outpouring. There was a man that was involved that was preaching the gospel. It was such a powerful move of God. Almost 100,000 people came from all over the world to hear the message being preached within three months. They were having an average of two to 3,000 a night, seven days a week. They had to go to the baseball stadium. God showed up. And there was this attractive young assistant that would talk to the ladies when they would get healed. And looking back now, the pastors could see that he had a wrong relationship with her. He cheated on his wife, got a divorce, married this woman, and quit the ministry. Now he's getting restored. But that was what happened. Crushed all of us pastors who were being encouraged by Him. And we were even being mocked and ridiculed because we believed in what God was doing. And then when He fell, it made us all look like fools. I still have a pastor friend that doesn't talk to me because I thought he was wrong for the way he treated this man. And he called me a backslider because I believed in him. And when this man fell, I looked like a fool in front of that man. Though I still disagreed with what he originally did. But the pastor made me look like a fool. How the mighty have fallen. I'm also reminded of some of my best, closest of friends. People that I've lived with God, uh, lived with them, shared houses with them, spent the night with them, even shared beds with them, preached the gospel with them. And I'm reminded now of how they've backslidden and turned their back on God. 
And some of my friends who have been backslidden, they are pastors who do not believe the gospel should be preached the way we preach it. And they have an idea like the man I just talked about. Just come to church. Just sit down. We'll do all the work. Don't do anything. How the mighty have fallen. Are you with me in 2 Samuel chapter 1? Are you ready to learn from the Word today? Are you ready to have hope be given to you today? Look at 2 Samuel chapter 1. What you're learning here is that Saul was a king, the first king of Israel. He had fallen into sin. David was anointed king in his place. And now David is receiving news that Saul had died in battle. Listen as I begin to read in chapter 1, verse 1 of 2 Samuel. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziglag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. He said the men fled from battle. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Jonathan was his son that David was best friends with. Verse 5. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? I'm an Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand over me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I am still alive. So I stood over him and killed him. Because I knew that after he had fallen, he would not survive. I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought the report, who, where are you from? I am the son of an alien, a Malachi. He answered, David asked him, Why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. So here the messenger is dead because he killed Saul to give him an honorable death because that wasn't what God commanded us to do. Verse 17, or commanded them to do in battle. David took up a lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament over of the bow. And it is written in the book of Jasher. Verse 19, Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights, how the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. Here David knows that Saul has lived wickedly. Saul at this time had been demon possessed. 
Saul had turned his back on God. And yet, David is not happy to hear that he's dead. He is mourning that he's dead. And he kills the man that helped put him to death. Well, who was Saul? Go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 10. I don't have time to teach you all about Saul. But I want you to learn a little bit about this first king of Israel. He wasn't a bad guy. He actually had a great beginning, a great start. This is a warning to everybody in this place that you can start well, but that doesn't mean you'll end well. You can start off your Christian walk and be radical and be jumping around and say, I'm going to do everything great for God, but in five years your gas can run out. Keep your fire burning. First Samuel chapter 10, you meet this young man, Saul. He's looking for his lost animals. He meets a prophet, Samuel. Samuel gives him this word as he anoints him king. Look at First Samuel 10.1. Then Samuel, the prophet, took a flask of oil, poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? Verse 5. After that, you'll go to Gilba of God where there's a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you'll meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high places with lyres, tambourines, flutes, and harps being played before them. And they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power. And you will prophesy with them. And you'll be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do. For God is with you. Do you understand Saul started off prophesying? Saul was changed by the power of God. Saul was in a prophet's presence and the prophet anoints him. But as you continue to read about Saul's life in 1 Samuel 15, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to tell you what begins to happen. He begins to disobey God. And God rejects him. And God puts an evil spirit upon him. In 1 Samuel 16, 14-23, he begins to become jealous of David because David is playing music for him so that his demons will leave. And he starts to throw spears at the very person, David, who's trying to help him. By the time he's in 1 Samuel chapter 28, He's going to a witch to seek help for battle. Here was a man that once used to dance with the prophets. It says he danced with them, tambourine in his hand, dancing around, prophesying. Here at the end of his life, he's going to see a witch. And when he dies in battle, an Amalekite slays him because he's a coward and he won't face what the enemy will do to him. And he tells another man to slay him, which he had no right to do. He wanted to honor himself. And when David heard the news of this, David was crushed. You see, I feel today very much like David did. I feel today that I look to the church of America, to these leaders, to these people on TV, to the people writing books that you and I are supposed to read, and I see that at one time they were on fire, at one time they were preaching the truth, at one time the church was living for God, but now they have turned away from God. They've turned away from the Lord and they're jealous of what we're doing and they're angry and they throw spears and they sit back and they curse God because of what men and women like us are doing. But like David, I don't slay them. When David was chased by Saul, he didn't go after Saul to put him to death. 
As a matter of fact, David was merciful to Saul. He found Saul sleeping one time in a cave. When Saul was out to kill him, he found Saul and he tore off a piece of his cloak with a knife and he went to a hill and he said, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And then he repents for even touching his cloak. My friends, I'm not preaching this message to you because I think we're better than other people and I, and I want to put up all their websites here and let's mock them. I'm preaching this to you out of a broken heart. But the lesson that God showed me in this passage is that, oh, how the mighty have fallen, but also how God raises up new mighty men. How God will raise up new mighty men. Because as Saul was laying there dead, and David is having a pity patty party in 2 Samuel, as he hears all of those things, God is raising him up. And God is putting some crazy folk around him. To take their place and to be radicals. Are you ready to learn about being a mighty man or woman? Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 22. This is all the introduction, by the way. So don't be in a hurry. I've got to build this up so you'll understand what I'm talking about. 1 Samuel chapter 22, when you're there, say I'm there. When David was being chased by Saul... Verse 1, chapter 22, verse 1. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Everybody say the cave of Adullam. When his brother and his father's household heard about, they went down there. And all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around them. And he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. So when David was running from Saul and he hid in a cave, there were people that were in debt. There were people that were discontented. There were people that the Bible says that they were in distress. And they said, man, we ain't got nothing else to do. Why don't we go join with David in this revolution? Come on. They said, man, we've already messed up in the the eyes of society. We're already outcasts. What do we have to lose? Let's join this man and let's fight for a revolution. And at the cave of Adullam, David becomes the leader of about 400 men who were distressed, in debt, and discontented. Do you want to know what became of those men? Do you want to know what became of those men? Turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 11. David conquered all of the promised land. David became the king of Israel by military force, slaying the Philistines, destroying all of the other nations. He is the prototype for Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. As the Christ will come and destroy the world and conquer it, that's what David did in the promised land. But he didn't do it alone. David had some folk with him called mighty men. And guess where they came from? They came from the cave of Adullam. Look at 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 10. At the end of the life of David and all of his conquests, the writer begins to talk about the people who rode with David. The rough riders. The people that rode along with him and brought the pain. Are you listening to me? Verse 10. These were the chiefs of David's mighty men. 
They, together with all Israel, gave kinship, support, and extended over the whole land as the Lord had promised. This is the list of David's mighty men. Look at your neighbor and say, are you a mighty person for God? Come on, mighty men or women, it can go both ways. Jashabim, a Hikmatite, was chief of the officers. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed in one encounter. Here was one of David's mighty men with a spear. He slayed 300 men. Next to him was Eliezer, son of Dodai, the Ohite, one of the three mighty men. He was with David at Pas Dinam. When the Philistines gathered there for battle, at a place there was a field full of barley. The troops fled from the Philistines, but they took stand in the middle of the field. Come on, somebody. These mighty men are standing to fight battle, and their army, their people leave them. And these three guys stand right there in the field and say, let's get it on. Get ready to rumble. These are mighty men. These will make the 300 look like little boys and girls on McDonald's playground. Are you listening to me? The troops fled. Verse 14. But they stood in the middle of the field. They defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord brought about a great victory. These boys said, this the field of barley belongs to the Lord, and we will stand here unto death. Praise God. You see, when Saul and Jonathan fell, God said, I'll raise up 30 more in their place, David. He said, David, if you remain faithful to me, I'll raise up 30 more in their place. Keep reading verse 15. Three of the thirty chiefs came down to David to the rock at the cave of what? The cave of what? The cave of Adullam. And you can read about how they fought through a battle line just to get David a glass of water. And you can keep reading. Go on down to verse 22. Benaiah, son of Jodah, was a valiant fighter with Kazbel. Who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down in a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And he struck down an Egyptian who was seven and a half feet tall. Although the Egyptian had a spear like a weaver's rod in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. Beat that Egyptian on the head with that club. Come on. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Take that. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jodah. He too was a, as famous as the three mighty men. He was held in great honor than any of the 30, but he was not included among the three. So here's a guy that's in the 30, but he can't even be in the top three of David's mighty men. Beating a dude down with the club, killing him with his own spear. He's bad, but he's not as bad as those top three. But he's still in the 30. Somebody say it's not the 300. Say it's the 30. Say, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. Now I want you to understand when we look at this next passage right here. These were people who were once 
in distress. These were people who were once in debt. These were people who had nothing else to live for. And now they're being honored forever in the Bible. The mighty men were. Eshile, the brother of Joab. Elhanan, son of Doda of Bethlehem. Shemath, the Herite. Helaz, the Pelonite. And the list goes on and on. And you hear that these men were named as David's mighty men. If I was to make a list today, would your name be on it? Hello, somebody. Did you fight alongside me? Did you stand up with this church to preach the gospel when others fell? When other churches said, we're just going to have a hassle-free ministry, not ask nothing, not ask you to say, do anything. Did you run away and go to another church? Or did you stand your ground, soldier, and fight with me as we plow through the enemy territories? I want to ask you, would the elders, would the youth ministers, would David and Carrasco put your name down and say, yes, this is a mighty warrior. She has fought with me in battle. Look at First Chronicles chapter 12, next chapter over. There was another place where they came from, Ziglag. First Chronicles 12, these were the men who came to David at Ziglag while he was banished from the presence of Saul, son of Kish. They were among the warriors who helped him in battle. They were armed with bows and were able to shoot arrows or to sling stones right-handed or left-handed. Imagine a guy coming with you with two slings in his hands. Come on. They were kinsmen of Saul, the tribe of Benjamin. Yazer, their chief, and Joash, Jezil. And he begins to name them about the 30 that he describes them again. Look at verse 8. Some Gadites defected to David at his stronghold in the desert. So here you have just nobody's a Gadite. Who's a Gadite? These are just nobodies. They were brave warriors. I want to cry reading this. Because I'm thinking about people who fight alongside me and who fight alongside the Lord. Listen to this. They were brave warriors. Ready for battle. And able to handle the shield and spear. Listen to this. Their faces were like the faces of lions. And they were as swift as gazelles in the mountains. When you looked at their face at battle, they were... Like lions. And they were swift. You see, what I'm calling you to be today is a mighty man in God's army. Because I'm standing here before you crushed. Crushed in my heart. Like David was when he heard of Saul. I am so crushed when I see people I have looked up to give up fighting the fight. I'm crushed when I see a pastor whose church I used to dance and love him challenging me to be radical for God. Says that if I come, he won't ask me to do anything. He won't expect me to say anything. What a shame. But I am filled with hope 
that today I'm looking across people that maybe you're not wise in the world standards. Maybe you're not noble in the world standards. Maybe you are in distress. Maybe you are discontented. That does sound like how a lot of people came to us, baby. And maybe you're just discontented. But I want to tell you something. If you join the army of the Lord, and if you're not afraid to hold a spear and a sword in your hand, you can become a mighty man or woman for God. Come on! Turn with me to 1 Corinthians as we get to the lesson today. Amen? Now you understand the lesson. If I would just say, be a mighty man or woman of God, you wouldn't understand the broken heart. You wouldn't understand it, but now you have the context. Now let me give you some tools on how to become a mighty man or woman of God. Number one, don't look at yourself. Hello? Don't look at yourself. You cannot look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'm going to do this. You cannot. You have to look to God. You don't even look to me because I'm, I got my knees on the ground. I'm facing this way too, my friend. Let's look at how strong pastor is. No pastor's on his face blubbering the worst out of all of us. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Don't look at yourself. But look to God. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. And as I'm about ready to read this, I'm reminded of the tears that my friend Juan would read this with at SUM, Bible College. It was his favorite passage. He always knew right when to pull it out. One particular time, we were all discouraged. We weren't seeing souls saved. He would be in the back normally, and I could hear him sniffling, and he started to read this scripture. He said, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him you are in Christ who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, our holiness, In our redemption, therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You do not have to come here, mighty, to leave out of this place, mighty. I used to sleep in my car. I was homeless. I did drugs. I was worse than many of you ever were. You wouldn't even want me in your house. And yet God chose me. I stand before you not to brag about how bad I was, but to boast in how great the Lord was in choosing a sinner like me to become a leader in the church of God. And if He can do it in my life, He can do it in every one of you here today. When I was on drugs, I couldn't remember anything. I had terrible memory. But God gave me back my mind. God took away All of the fear in my heart. And He'll do it for you. 
Number one, don't look at yourself. It's not about what you bring to the table. Well, I have so much I can help out with. No, even if you brought all your talent, it wouldn't get us anywhere. We're not looking for you in the time of pledging to the work of God just to look at your savings and say, what can I do without? No, I'm looking to people that have nothing in their savings to say, God, what can you do through me? Never sell God's plan short for your life. If I could keep you here all day, I would tell you one testimony after another of God using just ordinary people to do extraordinary things. People that were afraid to speak in public, becoming some of the best public speakers. D.L. Moody, who is the founder of Moody University, for the first two years of his ministry in Chicago, didn't even find himself fit enough to preach to the children that he would bring to the church. He always brought somebody to preach for him because he himself did not think he was even fit to talk because he was born in an uneducated family that spoke with an uneducated accent and didn't have a good vocabulary. But one day, the pastor he asked to come speak didn't show up. And he was forced to speak because he wouldn't send the kids home without hearing the gospel. And that man, D.L. Moody, became one of the best orators and preachers this world has ever known. And the university downtown stands as a testament to his boldness to preach God's word, even when others wouldn't. And he spoke it in the language of the people because that's what they needed to hear. I think of Steve Hill, the leader of one of the greatest revivals in America. Steve Hill was a heroin shooting teenager that was dying from an overdose and he called on God to save him and he was saved and he went to a drug rehab for a year and he got rehabilitated and he went to Argentina and worked with the poorest of the poor and God has used him to plant hundreds of churches and has seen over a million souls saved. He was once a heroin addict. I'm reminded about pastors and people I've met from the pastor of the church that I used to work at before. And those of you who know him, Pastor Carlos, you would look at him. He looks like one of the most dignified men you would ever meet. But I met his mother. He himself was a drug addict. But God changed him and made him a great leader. I'm reminded of stories of plumbers. A plumber by the name of Smith Wigglesworth that had such a burden to win souls for Jesus that he began to work in the church. And he never would preach. He would let his wife preach until one day she didn't show up and he had to preach. And Smith Wigglesworth went on to raise people from the dead by the power of Jesus Christ. Read about his stories. And he was just a plumber. I'm reminded of the stories of the people I've heard from our missionaries. I remember meeting a young man, and he was in North Central Bible College in Minneapolis. He was from India, and I asked him, how did you get saved? And he said, my dad lived in a small Indian village, and he was dying of a disease, and nobody in the Indian village could help him. And one missionary came and prayed for him, and when they prayed for him, all of the other village people shunned him, and he got healed. But they kicked him out of the village because he began to serve God. So here this young boy was once sick. Now he's healed. Now he gets kicked out of the village. And he goes to sleep in their little town square. 
And there he moves into a woman's house and starts to preach the gospel. And he built a church. He said, that was my dad. And he led me to the Lord as a child. And he sent me to America to go to Bible college. And that young man, John Timothy, would wake up every morning in the summer at 5 o'clock to pray. Pastor, I have to pray. How the mighty have fallen. But how the mighty are being raised up. Yes, there's mighty that have fallen, but the mighty are being raised up. If you want to be mighty for God, the first thing you do is you stop looking at yourself and you say this, it's because of Jesus Christ that I'm wise. He is my righteousness. He's my holiness. He is my redemption. Through Him I can do all things. And if I boast, and when I boast, it's in the Lord. Because I ain't going to stop boasting, amen? I'm going to talk junk to the devil until I get to heaven. We're going to let the devil know we are here. Amen. The second thing that you need to do is have a dependency upon others that are leading you. You see, these mighty men were not mighty man. It wasn't a mighty man. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. It wasn't a mighty man. Oh, Gary was just a mighty man. Have you ever heard of a mighty man football team? One man football team? You ever heard of a mighty man baseball team? Mighty man army? No. As great as these men were, they stood alongside of each other. They didn't always have to be the boss. It was okay. The one that they said was radical, he had three leaders over him. He's one of the 30, but he had three over him. And then David was over the three. This is a picture of the church. Jesus makes disciples, and then disciples make other disciples. I don't have to be David in the illustration. Just let me be one of the three. Amen? Jesus can be David in the illustration. But the bottom line is, we need people to fight alongside of us. You are not a one-man army, and you have to depend upon each other. I'm not saying that man will save you. I'm not saying that man died for you. No man can save you except Jesus Christ. But you are not to go through life alone. And if you want to know the secret of the mighty men, they fought together. And when you see the movie 300, which is very gory, so be careful if you don't want to see that type of gore. But when they fought together, they linked their shields and they could not be penetrated. That's how these 30 men fought. They fought just like that, but a whole lot stronger because of the best. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. You need to learn this scripture and understand where it's coming from. Think of it as the battlefield. Think of it as real life. People are dying around you. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. Why? Because they make a lot of money off you. They're here to pimp you. No, they keep watch over you as men who must give an account. One day you will be there and you will watch me kneel before our Lord and Savior. And I will give an account of how I treated you. And you will watch all my motives be exposed. That if I led you for my own personal gain, you will watch it be exposed. 
If I led you out of an abusive heart with a mean spirit, it will be exposed. If I took from you things that were secret that you never knew of, it will be exposed. God will judge every intent of my heart. How did you lead them? Jesus, the great shepherd, is going to say to me, how did you lead my people? Did you treat them like the way I would? The leaders that are over the youth ministry... Griselda, Adolfo, Sue Ellen in the back, our elders, Ish and Ricky and, and, and Robin and Rachel, and those that work with you, the ones who pick up your children for youth group, Eddie Birdo, and the servants of the church, we are here to give an account to God. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For Pastor Joe has enough gray hairs already. Amen. For that would be of no advantage to you. Obey your leaders. Why are David and Araceli opening up their home so that they can sell Amway? So they can sell you Mary Kay? They're opening up their home so that they can teach the adults about Jesus Christ. If you can find a better leader, then I suggest you find them quickly because we don't want you here thinking less of our leaders and they're the best. If you think you can find somebody better, I invite you to find them now. God bless you. Because to us, they are the best. I would have my own mom and dad sit in their home and learn the Bible study. I myself would sit and learn the Bible study. There's no one here that couldn't benefit from the preaching and teaching in their home. There is no one here that couldn't benefit from Adolfo. It amazes me the pride of this religious generation that when they look at our elders and deacons, they criticize them by their age and their time with the Lord. You know what? I'm sure there was an Amalekite or a Philistine or two that thought that way before them bad mamma jamma slapped them upside the head with that club or spear. Hello, somebody. But they Proved it as they walked across them on the battlefield. Amen? And I'm not here to hurt people. I'm just here to tell you our leaders do damage to the kingdom of God. They do damage to the kingdom. They are not here as prototypes, as what we'll have one day. Well, Adolfo, he's not quite there, so we'll let him work his way. No, he's there now. He's there now. I will fight alongside of him. I'm telling you, man. If I had the ducats and I could bring some people, those would be the first ones I would bring with me to Pakistan. I would bring ten of them with me. And we would march down those streets. Now, some of you I may not feel confident with yet because you don't come to prayer. You don't show up to evangelism. You don't have the heart yet. You see, and the reason is because you're not obeying the leadership. When we tell you to come to prayer, it's for your benefit. It's so that you can become strong and work with us. When the drill sergeant says, stay down, soldier, crawl in the dirt, put your face in the dirt, it's not because he gets a laugh. It's because there's crossfire. When they say, climb on that pole, get over the side, soldier, they're doing that. The leaders are telling them, obey, 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 because they know one day they're going to be standing up in the middle of a battle and they're going to say, take the hill. And they're going to need men of courage, women of courage, who will lay down their life and take that hill. Read the story of Hamburger Hill in Vietnam. Our young men and women in war storming a hill because their general said, it's time to take that hill. And they stormed the hill. Read about the invasion of Normandy. Storming the beaches. Iwo Jima storming the beaches. Why? Because they were men and women of courage. There were people dying all around them, but my leader said, we must take this beach. 
You having your youth leader tell you to the young people, pray because we must take back our high schools. Listen to your leader. The adults, we're telling you, come to small group, come to the evangelism in the neighborhoods. Why? Because we must take this community. You're hearing our children's pastor teach your children memory verses. Shut off your TV. Teach them at home. Why? And follow the instruction of the children's pastor. Why? Because she wants you to win back your children. Take them back from Power Rangers and Pokemon and all those other silly things. And then you have a person like me who's responsible for all of the other leaders. Pray for me that I would do right. But the first thing you can do to show me you're praying is to obey. Not that Pastor Joe wants to be young and in charge. Who's the boss? I am. No, I'm here to serve you and I will be given an account one day. Number one, don't look at yourself. Number two, be dependent upon others around you. And number three is hate what God hates and love what he loves. Would you stand up with me, please? Turn with me to Second Peter chapter 1. Verse 5, just some things to edify you today. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, knowledge self-control, self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you do not have them, if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted, blind, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Go through that list of your life right now and ask yourself, am I hating what is evil and loving what is good? Am I pursuing faith? That's trusting in God, proclaiming his word. Am I doing the right things, goodness? Do I pursue knowledge? Do I keep myself under control? Do I persevere? Am I willing to go forward even when it gets hard? Godliness. Do I look like Christ? Act like Christ? Brotherly kindness. Do you love people? And do you love as the way God loves? You see, the mighty men had some things that defined them after they were called. They didn't have it at the beginning. And I don't expect you to have it all together. I don't have it all together. But when they came, broke, busted, and disgusted, God said, I can use you. And the first thing they had to do was stop looking at themselves. They had to start looking at God and say, come on, I'm going, God. I'm going to stand on this barley field until I cannot stand anymore. There's another story of one of them that he fought so long and hard that they had to peel the sword out of his hands. His hands had clamped tight. And they say in battle, you can do that. Your hand can just get so tight like this, you can't open it back up. They have to stretch it back out. Number one, they didn't look to themselves. They looked to God. Number two, is they trusted in leadership and they depended upon other people. You got my back? Yeah, I got your back. And I, you got mine? Yeah, we got to get Jim's. We got to get Adolfo's. We got to get Andrew's. Let's all stay together. Come on. Press forward. Listen to what the commander's saying and just keep your head foot down and plow through and, you know, run up the hill. They knew how to follow those instructions because they knew their lives depended on it. And you get those pictures of battle. That they're just shoulder to shoulder. Sometimes maybe like those two that are standing in that field. They were probably just back to back. And just knocking them down one after another. 
Because if one fell, the other one was going to fall. You know, people have told me since I, I started this church, they, they say, don't you know you're turning people off? Don't you know that you're not always being effective? I mean, couldn't you just change it a little bit and you'd be more effective? Let me ask you a question in all honesty. Not mocking those people because they, they ask it with a good heart. This pastor with a good heart is trying to make people feel comfortable, but they don't understand we're in a battle. My effectiveness is not judged on how people like me. My effectiveness is judged on eternity and how we are raising up disciples. I don't mind people judging my ministry. The Bible says you need to check the, the tree, check the tree to see what the root's like. Check the fruit to know the root. I don't have problems with people checking our fruit to know if our root is good. But let me ask you a question. If I was effective at running a nursery with 2,000 babies that were all eight months and younger, and I was effective, I could run that nursery I could change those stinky diapers. I could put a bottle in that one. And I could go over here and change the clothes in that one. And there's 2,000 of them. I love it when people brag about their numbers. There's 6,000 people in that church, brother. They're effective. Okay, let's just say I was effective with 2,000 babies. I put all of my leaders in charge of taking babies. Okay, when that baby cries Adolfo, you coddle that baby and you tell it's all okay, it's okay. And then when that baby cries Griselda, that's when you burp it. Listen to me. In all seriousness, if I then took those 2,000 babies, and I was actually thinking about this literally, and it broke my heart because I think about my baby, and I set them on a battlefield, what would happen to them? They would get annihilated. One Marine would crush and kill them all in moments. It would be a massacre. If you saw 2,000 children get stomped upon, get crushed, get beaten, get shot and killed, we would be weeping and wailing. And that's the way the church is right now. The pastors say, oh, I got a large congregation. We're so much effective, pastor. Look how big we are. We make them feel comfortable. Yeah, you know what? You're just taking care of babies that are going to get whooped by the devil. And that's not okay with me. I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with Christians coming to church and going out the door, getting whooped by Satan, getting beat down, getting destroyed, and going to eternal damnation because some sissy backslidden pimp pastor wouldn't preach the undefiled, uncorrupted Word of God with some passion and boldness with a face like a lion. Come on. It's hurting people. My cry to the pastors as I cry out to you is it's hurting people. It will cost us something. These numbers are not something we should boast and run around about. We should be weeping because they're not prepared to fight. And that's why 
Since the 1950s, as Christianity has plummeted, the mega churches have risen. We will be a big church. There's nothing wrong with big numbers, people. I'm just saying, but the trend has been, let us all leave our small little Baptist corner store Methodist churches, and let's all go to these big ones. But listen to me, it's a facade, friends. The, uh, the statistic of Christianity has gone down. We're losing. You're losing your children to homosexuality. We're losing our children to the streets and violence. We're losing to the other religions on these streets and these churches. We are losing. It's going down. I'm reminded of a church that I was a part of their denomination, a great church. It was called the Good Shepherd. It met right on here on Belmont. And the reason why I say their name is because they were shamed of their own action. And you need to know it. The Good Shepherd, it was a great church. It was founded by praying people in the 50s. But as the community changed to more Latino, more Polish, the white people moved out to the suburbs. And they said, hey, I got an idea. Let's move our church out to the suburbs. And they put their building up for sale. And the moment they did that, the Muslims jumped on that so fast. And now they had a problem. If you don't sell it, you're going to go to a lawsuit and you're going to lose everything you have. They had to sell their old church property and buildings to the mosque and Islamic center that is now on Belmont and Narragansett. Josh lives right by there. Am I telling the truth? An entire campus drive by there. You'll see the words all over the place. It was a church. I would rather die than have that happen. Let them come get this sword out of my cold, dead hands before I leave it here. Are you listening to me? Let them come pry this thing out of my hands before we leave it here. We will not let that happen. You see, I'm not here to have a nursery. I love you, and I think you're cute, okay? Ladies, not too cute, just cute in that nice way. You know what I mean. Your hair is cute, your glasses. You know what I'm talking about. But I am not here to keep you as that little baby. I have to get you ready for battle. I have got to prepare you for those last things. You have got to be growing in faith. You have to be growing in goodness. You have to be growing in, in, in your uh, perseverance, your self-control. You have to. Your life depends on it. Man, would you come, please? Let's pray. Father, I thank you today that as the mighty have fallen, Lord, and as these people's names I've mentioned with a broken heart, not out of mockery, not out of religious pride, but out of a broken heart, as they have fallen, God, you're raising up a generation. You're raising up a generation that is distressed. They're broke, busting in discussion, but God, they'll leave it all to follow you. They're not noble. They're not wise. But God, they look to you for their righteousness and their wisdom. God, I look to you now to raise up a generation of warriors. I ask you now, Lord, in this place to take the words that were spoken and let it become our battle cry. Let it become what leads us to battle.